And so as we come to chapter 17, David has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And we studied this last week, and that was that treasure chest, if you will, of gold that had within it the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses, and it represented the presence of God amongst the people. And the people of Israel had been in the Promised Land for over 400 years, and it had been in various tents or tabernacles, as they're called. And when David took the city of Jebus and made it Jerusalem, the capital for Israel, his capital, he wanted to have that centralized worship for the people as well, that essential political place, and now they were going to unify with the spiritual place of bringing the Ark of the Covenant there to Jerusalem. Now, after David steps into eternity, his son Solomon comes to power, and he builds the temple. The Lord comes and fills the Holy of Holies with his presence at that dedication. So we know the Lord is in all of this. And so now David wakes up, and he's like, wow, you know, like, this is awesome. I'm the king. We've got the ark here in this tent right there. I've got all these cedar homes. I own multiple properties. I'm the king. It's going good. We've given all of our enemies a beatdown. We've put them in subjection, so there's no conflict right now. We're, we're holding a, a peace with everybody. And then he must have got the thought that I'm really rich and God's really poor. Because he's in his cedar house like he, like he had the best. You know, these new, like, Costa Mesa gentrified looking homes, like, yeah, really, like, if you do it really nice in Huntington, he's got these going up, replacing all the old homes from the 30s, and you're like, wow, like, Keith and I were on the bike the other day, we saw these ones, they just finished there on Huntington, so I'm like, wow, right, so David had the wow houses, and he's like looking out the window going like, and there's the Lord in that little Boy Scout tent, what's up with that, he's like, my God's not poor, I'm wealthy, and God's living like he's poor, and he says we're the head, not the tail, so what's he doing living in a tent? You can see how he would come to that conclusion. And so he gets this, he gets this idea like, hey, I, I, the Lord's in a, in a tent and we need him in a house. And Nathan the prophet goes, wow, of course, David, the Lord is with you. Do whatever you want. And then the Lord rebukes Nathan at night and goes, no, that's not the plan. And from there, the Lord speaks a word through Nathan to David that I never really asked anyone to build me a house. I've been with you the whole way. And in fact, I'm going to build you a house when you're God and in eternity. And from your legacy of your family, your house will become come the king in this kingdom that will be everlasting and nothing can stop it. So David goes like, wow, that's crazy. So he, he quits talking and thinking about doing, and now he's sitting and thinking about listening. And he goes, it's implied he goes before the Lord, maybe at the tabernacle where the ark was. He goes, Lord, how can you do this for me? What, what is, who am I? And so he has the hows and the whats and the whos. And he just goes, Lord, you're amazing. See, he's, he's heard amazing grace and amazing mercy for him and his descendants. And he's just like, wow, he's just completely blown away. And he goes, Lord, you're pleased to do this. You've promised this. You're a blessing God. You say you're going to bless and you're going to bless because what you say you're going to bless, you're going to do. And that's the chapter. It's an amazing chapter. But to really bring it to a head is it starts out with what David's going to do for God. And God says, I've already done it, David. I've already done it. It's not what you're doing for me. It's what you're receiving from me. It's not about what you're going to make happen. It's about what I've already called to happen and you being a part of it. So it starts out with David saying, I want to do this for you. And God says, I'm going to give you a covenant and do so much more. That's the background to this story. And there's a key verse that pops up here in verse 11. In the middle of David being, in the middle of Nathan telling David what the Lord said in response to his request to build everything, this powerful uh, statement comes forth where it says this. Excuse me, it's verse 12. I'm just going to grab the phrase. God said this. 
And I will establish his kingdom, that is, this son that's going to come from David. He shall, that's a capital H, he shall build, my, build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. So David's like, wow, so one of my sons is going to be like this. But David is thinking sort of time, space, and matter, or two-dimensional, and God's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the glory. He's taking David's family and saying, hey, you'll see from you, Solomon will do this and some of these kings. But I'm talking about something way bigger than that. And in fact, if we had any doubts about it, when we come to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, this is what's recorded for us as a cross-reference that sheds light on this word that God spoke to David through Nathan the prophet. When the angel spoke to Mary, he said, you, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. It's chapter 1, verse 30 of Luke. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the fulfillment, the expansion, the extension of the promise that God made to David is this promise of the birth of Jesus as a savior of the world. And we know that Jesus is the king of the Jews and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is for the Jew first and then all the nations, as Romans 1, 16 and 17 tell us. We understand that. The Jewish people under their covenant were entrusted with the scriptures and the promise that the Messiah of the universe would come through their ethnicity, their people, and specifically of the tribe of Judah and deliberately of the tribe of the, of the house of David within the tribe of Judah. And so when we read the Gospel of Luke, it's made clear that Jesus is the son that this passage of Chronicles is talking about. Jesus is the king, not Solomon. And the kingdom of God is the kingdom that he's talking about, the eternal kingdom. Like when Jesus said, they asked him how to pray, and he said, your kingdom come, your will be done, that kingdom. Now, we know the kingdom of God in the Old Testament to be right with God, and the kingdom of God advancing from the original sin with Adam, and how God blessed Abel, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and so on and so forth. It was always moved forward by faith. It was always faith in God, who he is, and what he promised, and believing it. It was never earned. No one ever earned salvation, heaven, the promises. They always heard them and believed them. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And Abraham believed God. It was accounted him for righteousness. And as it is said by Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. So, as we look at this kingdom, from the original fall, from the head of our race, Adam... All the subsequential revelations and progressive covenants bringing us to Gabriel speaking to Mary that this kingdom, this king in this kingdom is the son of the most high and is everlasting. Now we get the full blooming. I was with my grandkids a couple weeks ago. I was with them since then, but I was talking with Velzy, the four-year-old, and we're laying there in the sun, one of those first warm days of the last week or two, and we're laying on the back porch, and our flowers are blooming, and the bees are around, and the birds are chirping, and he goes... Papa, Papa, when a flower opens up, it's called blooming. I go, that's right, Velzy. You can see the flowers are blooming. And I said, and Velzy, when you're going forward with the Lord, you're blooming like a flower. Yeah, Papa. 
right? Well, all those promises of Christ were just moving forward through generations and generations. And then right there, when eternity comes to Mary, with the pronouncement of the virgin birth, boom. This passage balloons right before our eyes. It opens up to us. So now we know, looking at this Chronicles text, we're not just talking about Israel and all those 19 kings of Judah we studied in 2 Kings. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who we're talking about. And we're not talking about the nation of Israel per se. We're talking about the church of Jesus Christ because he gave the church the keys to the kingdom. And tonight as we're gathered as a local church, part of the universal church, well, really, this is the black and white version where we have the color version, the fullness of this, as we look at the New Testament. This wonderful promise of this kingdom. So tonight we want to look at this text in application, considering our place in the kingdom of God. Our place, each one of us, each human being on planet Earth, there's 8 billion of us, and those who open their heart to Christ, receive his spirit through faith, and are born from above, born again, we are in the kingdom. We are the kingdom of God on earth. There's no other philosophy or human groups or religious organizations. They're the kingdom. We must receive Christ. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So when we hear the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave, when we receive that message, and it's sincere, and the Lord knows it's sincere, we're born of the Spirit and we're born again. So we pass from death to life. And so now we're in the kingdom, and we have a place in the kingdom. Now, in recent months, I've talked a lot about Ephesians chapter 2, where we're told that we are God's workmanship, that we're not working for heaven. We've received the gift of heaven through faith in Jesus. But he has a unique workmanship, like a work of art for each of our lives, and we've been talking about that. As we look at this text tonight, and we think about our place in the kingdom, because this is God having a conversation through Nathan to David about David's place in the kingdom. And the first point we see with all this is found in verse 7 of divine purpose. And we even say divine destiny, but we'll stick with divine purpose. But when you say divine purpose, you're really saying divine destiny as well. So David had this, I'm going to do this. And, and then the Lord comes back like, no, you're not going to do that. And then the Lord reminds him who's choosing who, who is saving who, and who's in charge of this universe. He says there in verse 7, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. See, David didn't earn that. He didn't take that to himself. It's not like he just woke up one day like a great entrepreneur or businessman or woman and said, you know, I'm going to be the shepherd of Israel. I'm going to be the king of Israel. He was taking care of the sheep. That was a lowly job in that society. It was a minimum wage job. And in his family, he's the youngest, and he's doing the, the household chores that no one wants to do. And he's protecting those sheep from the lion and the bear, bears. He's developing a relationship with the Lord in his own faith at that time. But that day when Samuel the prophet came to his father's house, Jesse, and they brought the, king, the, the sons of Jesse before Samuel to be the next king, None of them were it. And then they had to go get David out of the field from doing his minimum wage job out there in the barn or in the backyard. That sort of job you would never even, you just say, I don't want that job. And I hope I don't have that job. And if you're smart, you respect people who do that job because someone has to do it. That was David. See, Jesus would say a thousand years later, 
before he stepped into eternity in glory to the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I chose you that you're, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So when Matthew, the tax collector, left the tax booth and followed Jesus, he didn't really choose Jesus. Jesus chose him. Follow me. When Peter and Andrew and John and James followed Jesus, they didn't really choose him. He, he chose them. He said to them, follow me. And in fact, what's very interesting with David, he said, you were following the sheep. Did you catch the nuance of words here in the English language? You were following your dad's sheep, but I chose you to be a shepherd. He said, when I came into your world, I met you in your world. I met you in your world, and I related to you in your world. He did the same thing with Peter. Because he said to Peter, who's a fisherman, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. He did the same thing. See, the one who chooses us already knows everything about us. He knows our nuances, our personalities, our likes, our dislikes, our interests in these things. And he already, he made us when we're a single cell in our mother's womb. And that cell just multiplied in the beauty of origin and design. As the chromosomes do what they do. And it's, you know, it's so wow, it's, it's incredible. In this universe of trillions of galaxies, you're being fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb, and that your soul knows well, David said in Psalm 139. He understood that God chose him, but here, when he becomes the king, he has to really understand, you didn't make this happen, I made this happen. In fact, God would say, I protected you, I established you, all that took place in this chapter. There's a ton of stuff in this chapter. In Ephesians, in the New Testament, we get a similar phrase that really gets our attention, and I want to read it to you. And I want to read it exactly the way it is. I could paraphrase it, but I prefer to say it exactly. In Ephesians chapter 1, now we talked about this Tuesday night. What we learn about the Lord as he reveals himself to humanity, it's about who he is and what he's done. And so often man's about what I'm going to do to earn God's favor. So the book of Romans, for example, is like 11 chapters of what God's done, and then the first instruction for people to respond to it. The book of Ephesians is similar. It's three chapters about what God's done, and then chapter 4 is about how we respond to it. God wants us to sit and think about who he is and what he's done, grasp it, receive it, and then respond to it. So in Ephesians chapter 1, one of the most profound chapters in the entire Bible, Paul the Apostle, led by the Holy Spirit, is talking about this concept that God chose us And he said in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, that's amazing. He wants us to know right away we have every spiritual blessing we'll ever need. Hey, there's no children of a lesser God in this house tonight, WG. There's no children of a lesser God. There's no, there's no like, you know, the wrong kid in the wrong family. When we come to Christ... He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So before the world was ever formed, before God ever spoke into existence, before he ever said, let us make man and woman in our image, he he chose us. We think of time like a parade, like the Huntington Parade on the 4th of July. They line up on PCH by 9th Street. And they come up Main Street, and they end over there by the Albertsons and, you know, all that. But God's above the parade. He's, he's in a different dimension. 
So he sees from the end from the beginning. So some concepts of how God works and how God's always been, and he's always been the Lord, always will to be the Lord, and all things are made by him and for him, and all things consist. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We're like, I think it's kind of work on the Ten Commandments today, right? Like, but God is God and we are not. And as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above ours. He makes that very clear. But here he's revealing a truth about you and me coming to Christ and our purpose on planet earth. And that's what we're getting at here. Our place in the kingdom of God. And he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame. So know this, we're chosen to be set apart. We're chosen to be set apart. We're not like the world. We're not delusional. We're not deceived. We're not under the influence of demons, and we're definitely not pursuing death. We have truth, the way, and life in the person and the work and the promises of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified, which means set apart, holy. We're children of a very wealthy conglomerate, if you will, and we need to carry ourselves like that. We're not children of a poor upbringing, and poor opportunity. When we come to Christ, we're adopted into the family, and we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And so the blessings are yes, and the promises are yes, and amen. And we need to understand that. So that we should be holy and blameless before him, he having loved us in love, so love is our mark, predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus, by Jesus Christ himself. So we're adopted in the family through our big brother Jesus, and that's built on in the scriptures a couple times in different places. It helps us understand human relations to understand our relationship with God through faith in Jesus, our mediator, and the way to the Father. But it says that all this was being chosen according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It's his good pleasure. And it's kind of cool because at the end of this chapter of 1 Chronicles 17, David says, it it pleased you to do this. It pleased you to do this and bless my household and my offspring. And you say you're going to bless, and you're going to bless, and you do bless, because when you say you're blessing, you're blessing Our God's a blessing God. And God had chosen David long before David thought, your tent needs a house. Before David got his idea like, hey, God needs an upgrade. God's like, hey, 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 sit down. Let me explain to you how this works. When you were following the sheep, I chose you. And then I chose you for this purpose to be king. And this is important because we've talked about workmanship, that God... Jesus saves us from our sins and from our past and from ourselves and being in Adam. And he saves us to being in Christ, to victory. And we're not hoping for victory. We're coming from victory. And he sets us free from the power of sin, the power of the devil, and the power of the grave. And he says, now let's get on with abundant life and let's live eternal life right now in time, space, and matter. And let's be holy so we can show the world what eternity looks like in time, space, and matter. That's what we're to look like. That's the legacy of the church of Jesus Christ when it's fruitful in the human experience for the last 2,000 years. That's who we want to be in our day-to-day experiences. Most of us are so worried about how we might share Christ with people. I'd be much more concerned how you live Christ before people than how you tell people about Jesus. Or as they say, your actions speak so loud, I can't hear a word you're saying. So we can do the showing, and then God will guide us with the speaking. We're chosen for a unique thing that's just us in the kingdom of God. And tonight, this text reminds us, go get it. Now, the second thing about our place in the kingdom is personal legacy. Now, as we go forth from chosen for that purpose, that divine purpose, that God has that plan. David was compared to sheep. Peter's compared to fish. And 
We find our identity and our purpose in Christ. So we have our place in the kingdom and we we come from victory. Now we have this legacy. And of course, again, I talk about this a lot because I guess if I'm a pitcher, this is just my favorite pitch when the game really matters. It's all about legacy. It's all about what our life is. And the older I get, the more I just see the vast majority of people do not live their life ever the way it's meant to be lived. And so I just want to exhort people from here to eternity to anyone that will listen to me, no matter where we're at in the journey, that you get your hustle on and you let God work in your life to do what he wants to do in your life so you finish well. I was riding with Keith Randolph the other day and I said, you know, I'm kind of stumped on the eight pillars of always forward and I've got sealed fruit but I just feel like that's kind of a harder term to understand because like take action, divine purpose, positive attitude, you know, absolute priorities, clear goals. I have two words. I'm like, hey, Keith, I got two words for each of the eight pillars. I'm like, but seal and fruit's a tough one. And he said, how about finish well? Can I use that? He's like, yeah, it all, it all belongs to the Lord. You use whatever you want. Finish well. That's what sealed fruit is. Don't we all want to finish well? Now, you younger people go like, hey, we're just getting started. Maybe not. Maybe not. Every day is the day that we have, and we want to approach the value of that day and redeem that day. And this comes to us in the second phrase in verse 11 when God said, it shall be when your days are fulfilled when you must go. Now, we are reminded we must go. Like, When your days are fulfilled, I know some of you probably woke up today and you thought about when your days are fulfilled, right? Like maybe you thought like, hey, this could be the last day when my days are fulfilled. See, it's in my goals every day. Before I do anything, I remind myself that eternity is coming for me and it might be today. Oh, man. It helps me not be afraid of the boogeyman. It helps me to make sure who's on the throne. If you know eternity is coming for you today, man, the, the big bad boogeyman, he got nothing over you, man. The, gra- the grave's coming for you, and you better, like, hold on tight to Jesus. Like, that's what really matters. But what a reality it is, and so if you didn't think about it yet, today at 7.03 p.m. this night, on the 22nd of April of 2023, I want to remind you that your days, our days, will be fulfilled. And sometimes you can see it coming. Sometimes you know you're dying. Sometimes you can look at people and know they're dying. But sometimes you don't know it's going to go that way. And it's stunning and it's, it's heartbreaking. Man, when death comes, it just can come so fast. And when you're not prepared for it, it's just, it's just so, the days are fulfilled just like that. And whether you're nine years old trying to wrap your mind around the fact that you have terminal cancer and what does that mean? or whether you're 93 and you realize it's all shutting down and you're fuzzy anyways because you've got dementia, it's, it's still coming for you when your days are fulfilled. And this phrase gets my attention, when you must go. I was thinking about this. I kind of want to go. Maybe you can relate to that. Like, you know, like, I thought about this because, you know, they had those, like, the superhero movies in the, around 2010, like, uh, Wolverine, those guys, like they've lived for like hundreds of centuries. You know, you see those with the kids. Like they, they, so it shows them fighting in the Civil War, fighting in World War I. I'm like, who wants to do that? Golly jeepers, Mr. Wilson. Who wants to do that? I don't want to live for centuries and centuries and centuries and outlive everybody else from that timeline. 
I mean, I got my hands full with 80 on the clock. And so do you. When you must go. David, when he stepped in eternity, he said, I go the way of all men. And we must go. That is an amazing reality that all of us have. When I taught this text verse by verse Tuesday night, I looked out on this congregation and I saw no less than three people in our sanctuary that night whose loved ones I did their memorial services for. It's just so real. It is so real. So we have this personal legacy. When your days are fulfilled, then you must go. So now we're talking about, like, how do we redeem the time? And this topic comes up. It's been coming up in Chronicles. But I thought about this. If you go home and pull up, like, Amazon Prime and Google Books, like, I'm always looking at different books. If you look up books on how to use your time wisely, man, there's so many books on time management. Yeah, make the most of your time. Time management made easy. You can manage your time. You know, like th- those kind of books. I'm like, oh, wow, oh, wow. You know, like, I got I to gotta get my head in the game. I got to manage time. But I think it was a motivational speaker, Jim Rohn, that said it best. You don't manage time. You just plan for time. Time doesn't, isn't managed by any of us. We're not going to wake up tomorrow. Hey, time, I'm going to manage you. No, you're not. Because we're on the clock. And God says 24-7 every day, every week, every year. You know, like. We don't manage time. Time manages us. And we're like a slow conveyor belt moving right toward eternity. That's what time's doing. We don't manage time. Time manages us. So what we need to do with time is foresee it and even possibly reverse engineer it, but anticipate it. We need to think about what we want to do with time. For me, 2041, of course, is a big number because I'm 80 in the year 2041. But I feel like 2036 is pretty big, because then I'm 75. That's a pretty big date, I feel like, being 75. Well, a lot of people talk about the five-year plan. So I go to 2028 every day and think about who do I want to be and where do I want to be in 2028. In my walk with the Lord, in my relationships with family, extended family, finances, ministry, worship generation, the kingdom. They call that the 3 a.m. wake up, you know, or 2 a.m. wake up. Like you woke up at 2 a.m. Where do you want to be in five years? I'm like, I can tell you in seven, I can tell you seven things for five years from now where I want to be. Because I think about it and I pray about it. If you don't think about where you're going, you're going to keep on doing what you're doing and you'll get exactly what you've got. So if you're satisfied with your God, just keep doing what you're doing. But if you feel like you should get more and get more, then you've got to change who you are and become more efficient with what you've got to get where you're going to be who you want to be. Hey, you follow that? I'm not satisfied where I am in character as a person. We have a running joke in my marriage where we think about things that daddy can't do when Jennifer's not around. That's me, I'm daddy, you know. She she chuckled the other day, she goes, I don't think you could turn off the sound machine if I'm not around. I'm like, well, you know, I start pushing stuff. I can for sure, I can pull the plug out. I'm not sure I can start it back up that it comes on at midnight or something, but I can definitely put it out of business. You know those funny things that you think about when you get older? Well, I want to figure out how to do that sound machine. So tomorrow, Jennifer, show me, you know, how to get the different sounds. It's not that I can't do it. I just, I'm not interested in doing it. But you never know. See, I have this thing where I say to Jennifer, for sure I go first because I can never live without you. We've got time. And, and it's not about managing time. It's about foreseeing how to use your time. See, the Bible doesn't say manage time. The Bible says redeem time. That means get after it, foresee it, and use it wisely value it you younger people need to realize us people in our 60s what we value above all else apart from health and not being in physical pain is time 
You value your health most of all. Because if you're in pain, man, life's just a bummer. But if you can get past that, then you value time. And what you can do with time. Can you make it to your grandkids' weddings? So you may think like, well, gosh, would I, would I even be alive to see something like that? Because you know that's how grandparents think. And that's what you do with time. You think about where you'd be. My mom, before she stepped into eternity at 85, she always had the next thing in her life that she was doing with time. She had things she did every day, soup kitchen, pick the food up from Albertsons, take it over here to the food pantry. She's going to go do the exercise thing, go to the city council uh, uh, street planning, you know, traffic commission board. She kept her mind busy, crossroad puzzle in the morning. And then, oh, Jimmy's going to graduate police academy. Hannah's coming out for the women's ministry. And I realized, in hindsight, after my mom stepped into eternity, right at the end of 2019, right before COVID came and all those experiences, that she didn't talk about anything in her future. And she'd gotten everything out of her body that she could at 85. And she stepped into eternity. See, we redeem the time by thinking about what we're going to do with the time for the kingdom, and we see it. So worship generation, that's the issue, because David said in Psalm 139 that the days were fashioned for us when yet there was none of them. And it's like, that's, that's realizing, okay, if I can hit this benchmark, that benchmark, you know, I just celebrated 35 years of marriage. What if we hit 50 years of marriage like Bruce and Gloria? That'd be amazing and awesome, wouldn't it? Wow. That's, that's something to look forward to in 15 years, if we can get there. Plus, the most important thing is enjoy every day of marriage until we get there, right? Yes and amen. You know, if you, get, if you hit the road mark, you know, good, good for you. But really, we have here, we have today. And actually, I've been very grateful thinking about just 35 years. What a, or as my dad says, you know, Joe, that's impressive. That's <laughs> my dad, he's classic, you know, 92. That's impressive. So, time and the legacy, because time is the legacy. So here's the thing. When our days are up and we have no more and we step into eternity, this is what we want to think about. What we leave behind and what, what, what did we do? What was the, our lifestyle, our legacy? In 1 Corinthians, we're told when we step into eternity, all of our motives and works will be tested by fire. And if we had the right intent, the right motives, and the right things, we're told that it, that which withstands a fire in our life, character, mo- motives, the fruit, it's like gold and silver and precious jewels. It can, stand, it can withstand fire. But the things we're distracted by, silly things that mean nothing, things that distract us every day, things that cause us worry and stress for no purpose, only because we didn't spend time with the Lord instead of watching the news. Like all these things, it's a bonfire. It's just going up in a blaze. It won't stand the test of time. Things that gave you peace instead of chaos. Things that gave you hope instead of despair. Things that gave you love instead of hate. Yeah? Forgiveness instead of bitterness. See, all those things of the character of Christ as we're his workmanship and he's working in and through us for his good pleasure, that's what's going to look good for our legacy when the last day comes to pass. And that legacy is there for eternity. The legacy of time... People have an opinion, but the real legacy of time is the fire before the throne of God when the works are tested by fire. That's when we're going to find out really what it was about. I have a saying in the morning, well, you know, eternity today in my exchange, faith today in my masterpiece, clarity today my goals, intention 
today my actions. Excellence, today my effort. Choices, today my character. Habits, today my legacy. See, we make the choices every day that really reveal our character, who we are. And if we correct bad choices, we improve to better character. And better character produces a better habit. And better habits produce a better legacy and lifestyle. So if you really think about what we want to do is we want to grow in better choices proactively that mold, because what do we just read in Ephesians? Holiness, character. So to make better choices across the board that produce better character, a higher character, because we're children of the king. We're daughters of the king. We're sons of the king. And we're going to glory. And all that offends or bothers you in this planet, this journey of life, will have nothing to do with where we're going. God's into character. We want to build kingdoms and stables and all these great things like Solomon and David's son did and multiply wives or multiply husbands or multiply... God's like, man, just let me multiply Jesus in you. Let's, let's make you ready for the end of days when you must go the way that you got to go. See, I want to get better. I want a better version. When I step into eternity, I want a new and improved version for 2023 than I had in 2022. Don't you? Seriously, don't you? Because your grandkids might think of your legacy a certain way and look at your life 10 years later when they're young adults. And someone say, oh, yo, honey, Papa Joe was classic, man. You, just, you don't even know. Like, Dad, you, you used to get, you know, you know when you're adult kids and you talk about your parents like, oh, gosh, mom. You know, like that kind of stuff. But the real legacy is before the throne in who you are. So we want to do that. And then finally we see, so we want to have that character lifestyle. We want, to, we want to be secure in who we are in Christ at divine purpose. But we want to understand that personal legacy that only we can fulfill. And then finally there's a bigger picture. And I, I love this passage here where it says in verse, verse uh, 10. I'm going to get my glasses on. It's right here in the 910 range. Also, I have to do all your enemies. Furthermore, I will tell you, I'll build your house, verse 11. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be to your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be, on your, who will be of your sons, and will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his own forever. So this is the original text we looked at, but notice what it says in the setup. I didn't read it earlier. I will set up your seed, that is your offspring, after you. There's always a bigger picture, and this is what I've really been thinking about. So when David says, I'm going to build you a house, and God's like, hey, you know what? I've been living in this tent for 400 years. It's gone pretty good. See, David's like, the Lord's like, David, like, David, now that's a good thing, but I've lived in this tent for 400 years. Now, going back to the time of Judges, so David could reference the book of Judges. It's like we could, did I ever ask anyone to build me a house? No. David, I've been doing a pretty good job running the universe before I made you. Before you were fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb, as you so aptly described in Psalm 139, I was doing a pretty good job running the universe. I'm just moving the prophecies forward. I was there with Abel, Enoch, when he walked with me and was not. I was there during the flood with Noah and his sons. I was there in the post-flood world. That was me that spoke to Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. I was with him on his journey. Every step was a step of faith with Sarai. I was there when Sarah laughed at the tent about the son of promise, Isaac. I was there when we, we, we decided to call him laughter. David, I've been doing a pretty good job running the universe before you were ever conceived and came to the world. 
And may I say to all of us, God's done a pretty good job handling the universe since before we came here. There's a trillion galaxies out there, and he knows every star by name, and he holds them in the span of his hand, as he says. There's no compound numbers that go out of God's ability to calculate and count them. There's no hair on any head. He doesn't know everything about the soul of that human being that's ever lived in the human experience, good or evil. There's a bigger picture. In fact, when uh, Habakkuk was pouring out his heart before the Lord about 300 years after this, he's like, oh, God, there's evil everywhere. There's this and that. And the Lord's like, you know what? I'm going to do a work in your day that will declare to you, you wouldn't even believe it. Then in Ephesians, he would say that God is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask. There is always a bigger picture. In Romans, Paul, as he was building this crescendo of mountaintops in chapter 11, he says, oh, how unsearchable are his truths and his ways past finding. Who can know? See, God is, this is what we need to remember tonight. As we're praising the Lord with that worship music earlier and as we're studying his word right now, he's working on such a bigger picture. We get so locked into our little tunnel vision of this is my world, this is what's going on at work, this is my cubicle, this is my relationships, this is my neighbor, this is my car problems. And we get so like tunnel vision and, and small-minded thinking. And like, well, God, if you really cared, how come we're not fixing this or whatever and these people and it won't go away? Man, we need to just expand our vision and realize for whatever disappointments we have, whatever great mountaintops we have, God was working long before we came. The church of Jesus Christ has been extremely fruitful and glorious since before we got here. And what I, the text I just read you, when we're gone and our days are fulfilled and we must go the way we go, he's going to keep working. He's going to keep working. He says, I'm going to put your son on the throne. It's going to happen, but you're not going to see it. In fact, of course, Solomon built the temple. He built the house for the ark. God's going to keep working. And that's, the, that's my really perspective on the human experience at the age of 62. God's been working. He is working. He's going to keep on working. God's been great. He is great. He's going to always be great. The church is his kingdom past, kingdom present, and kingdom future. Jesus came the first time. Everything's moving to Jesus coming the second time. And that's just, that's our universe. That's everything. That's our worldview. And it is the only worldview that matters because it's the worldview based upon the truth of God's word, who he is and what he's done and what he's promised. So we need to understand when we get frustrated with little teeny things and agitations and setbacks in life and frustrating things and you feel like, oh, who's even honest in government? Who's dishonest in government? Who's really calling the shots and who's really doing this? What's it matter? Maturity is realizing what you are called to do with the Lord and doing it. And knowing what you're not called to do with the Lord and let it go. That's it. We're told to cast our cares upon him for he cares for us and to get back to doing what we know he's called us to do. We were chasing the sheep. He made us the king of Israel. So get back to being the king and the queen of Israel. That's what we need to do. We only need to focus on what God's calling us to do each day and realize for the bigger picture of the universe and macro things that are beyond us, let God run his universe. Let, let him be the Lord. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am, I am a rock. There is no God but me and I'm your God. That's who he is. He's a bigger picture. He's establishing his kingdom in you and in me. And that's our place in the kingdom. And he chose our timeline. I had a funny moment with Pop yesterday. Just some classic moments with Dad. We were driving PCH. Oh, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. And uh, I said, Dad, you know, you got your 93rd birthday coming up. And he's like, well, thanks a lot. 
You know, like he kind of, t- I, I said, no, dad, like that's pretty awesome. You're born in 1930. I said, and you know, dad, we can never choose when we're born, right? Like God made us when we're made to be born. He's like, yeah, that's right. And he goes, and he goes, and you know, I survived two wars. I go, you did, dad. Plus you're married to mom. And he goes, make that three wars. <laughs> I go, pop, that is epic. Good thing mom's in eternity right now and can't go boom, you know. That was like an epic 92-year-old moment. Because it's witty, because my dad's always been like, make that three wars. It's all time. So you gotta be able to laugh. My dad's done so well being elderly because he's always been able to laugh at himself. He never takes himself too serious. He's a good man. Don't sweat the big things. Let God be in charge of the big things. And just receive the things that God has entrusted to us. Say, that's our place in the kingdom. To be faithful with the day and the stewardships and the responsibilities that we know are ours. And my dad is my stewardship and my responsibility. And I embrace it and I enjoy it. And I get those moments, you know. He doesn't remember the stories he told me five years ago. It was a little bit sharper. But when he throws something down like that, I'm like, Dad, you're, you're the guy, you know. And, and it's, just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good moment between a father and a son because someday I won't have those moments. And those of you know what I mean, you know what I mean. So I enjoy those moments while I have them. Be encouraged, body of Christ. We have peace in our hearts through faith in Jesus, and we have protection from Jesus, and it shapes our perspective. So let's be reminded tonight as we go fellowship with one another that truly there's a bigger kingdom, and it's the Son, and we have a place in this kingdom. And it's not about what we're doing. It's about what we're receiving and what we're believing and going forward in that divine purpose. It's not about what other things are happening, other timelines. It's about our place in history right now, our personal legacy today. And it's not about things that we can't control, an uncertain future and all these things. It's about peace in our hearts and a bigger picture. Let God be God and let us be faithful with what he's entrusted to us. That's really what it's about. Our assurance, the ultimate identity, and the hope of heaven.